Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. 2020 is already off to a raucous start with intensifying conflict and war anxieties in regards to Iran. The articles of impeachment are soon to be turned over to the Senate for a trial, and it's an election year. The outcomes of the 2020 election are sure to have enormous impact on both U.S. history and Arizona history. So we will try to keep doing our best here at The Political Notebook to offer context on news stories, go into depth on important issues, and provide analysis that is intellectually honest and hopefully provides uh, some level-headed perspective in a political era that is charged with emotion and, and partisanship. We record every other week, more or less, with occasional guest appearance. So thanks in advance for tuning in. Always feel free uh, to reach out to me for feedback, questions, or, or suggestions on topics. I want to kick off our episodes this year with a preview of the Arizona legislative session, which starts tomorrow, Monday. We're recording on a Sunday, so we haven't heard uh, Governor Ducey's state of the state yet, but I um, want to talk about uh, what opp opportunities are out there this session and what might unfold uh, politically this session. So first question, what do you think should be the priorities this session? Uh, what could happen where, where you would say at the end of the session, uh, this was a successful session for, for what the state needs? I, I think the, the state has a lot of money. Um, and uh, how to spend it is going to be uh, the uh, most important and dominant issue. There will be an attempt to change when that occurs and to a lesser extent how it occurs to try to get it done first rather than last and try to keep it from being held hostage. Um, to me, K-12 education funding uh, remains the uh, most important topic. Uh, and uh, the state has enough money uh, to, rather than continuing to phase in a replenishment of district additional assistance, lesser degree chartered additional assistance that was cut during the recession. K through 12 education has a variety of funding um, sources. Uh, this is one which used to be used uh, for what was called soft capital, textbooks, um, desks, that sort of thing. The legislature long ago allowed it to be used for anything. So now it is just another revenue stream um, for the schools. Um, but uh, it's discretionary dollars that they can use whatever purpose they want. Uh, and there is a lawsuit that is pending uh, saying that the state has unconstitutionally failed uh, to fulfill its obligations under a settlement of a lawsuit back in the 1990s. As part of that settlement, the state agreed to fund additional district assistance. They also agreed to fully fund the Students First program, which uh, provides for large capital needs, building new schools, making major repairs to existing schools. Uh, if the legislature fully restored 
um, additional uh, assistance and continued to adequately fund students first, not only would that do the right thing for the schools, be a proper use of the money, uh, but it would basically make that lawsuit go away. And we don't need to go back through, as we did, which yielded Prop 123, uh, into another lawsuit over school funding when the state has lots of money. Well, to me, that seems like a no-brainer, and you were, I know you were advocating for that last, last session. What could happen differently to, I mean, why didn't that happen last session, and what, what could happen differently in terms of you know, the politics or the advocacy to, to make that happen this session? Well, there was other uses of money for K-12 education, um, which received political priorities. Uh, you did have another year of a phase-in of restoring additional district assistance, but you didn't advance the timetable and spent in the legislature and the governor instead spent the money on his pet program to provide additional funding for schools uh, based upon high achievement uh, and the money that was set aside for school counselors and police officers within the schools for school safety. So we we have the governor and legislators um, basically trying to position themselves politically on certain issues um, rather than restoring the funding to districts and charter operators to use as they think best considering all uh, the needs that are out there. The other constraint is an analysis that the legislative budget staff does uh, as to how much can be spent on ongoing spending as opposed to one-time things like construction um, or paying down uh, the debt uh, without running into, pro uh, into trouble in the future. Well, whether you run into trouble in the future is um, contingent upon what you project for revenue growth in the future. And the legislative budget staff and the governor staff has consistently over the last few years underestimated what future revenue growth is going to be. So additional district assistance falls into the category of being ongoing spending. Uh, and the warning from the budget gurus had been, if you do what I've proposed, which is just restore that entirely, you may run into problems um, with a recurring deficit in the future, but that's based upon revenue growth of 3 to 4% a year, and we've been experiencing 7 to 10% uh, growth over the last three years. Um, so it may require the legislature being willing to take a little bit of risk um, against what I regard as excessive, excessively conservative projections. Um, it'll be interesting to see in the governor's budget, which will be at the end of the week, um, what he projects in terms of future revenue growth and the legislative um, budget uh, staff uh, will, within the next couple weeks, also do a revision. So my guess is you'll see an increase in even the money that the conservative estimates say can be put on ongoing spending 
which will increase the argument to go ahead and get the job done of restoring uh, additional assistance, um, provide that flexibility to the schools and get rid of a potential lawsuit. Let's stay on this education theme since it is likely to be uh, a dominant theme in, in the session like it has been uh, lately. And I want to get to the to the um, results-based funding that, that you mentioned in a little bit, but in terms of the the, the other question that this session is that not, are we going to um, not only f- fill in the uh, district assistance and, and the things that you're talking about, but are we also going to see a potential ballot initiative for, for a tax increase? Uh, do you, what do you think the likelihood is of a coalition building uh, to get uh, a ballot initiative uh, referred by the legislature to the voters? Well, a coalition requires the... Um, more liberal elements uh, to agree to a conservative funding option, um, con- a consumption tax, and the liberal elements want an increase in the income tax or an increase in the property tax. Um, I haven't seen any indication that they're going to give on that, that they want not only uh, more money for education, they want a more sharply progressive um tax system. And I think that precludes a um, broad coalition that would include the business community and uh, perhaps even some uh, conservative legislators. Whether Invest for Ed will go forward with an initiative, I think is in part a function of how aggressively the legislature moves on restoring additional assistance Um, and uh, other ways of uh, increasing funding. There's an awful lot of money there. So the more the legislature puts into K-12 education, the less argument that there is um, that we are still behind where we were um, before the recession. And that's the most powerful argument uh, for an increase in taxes. Uh, If we are back to where we were before the recession... Um, I think that the argument for a tax increase uh, becomes much more difficult to make and more easily defeated. And the legislature uh, can get awfully close to that um, this session. And whether there is an initiative, I think, will in part depend upon how close they get and how broad a coalition will depend upon what, if there is an initiative, what revenue sources is chosen. So let's talk about results-based funding for a little bit because that uh, seems to be a, a priority of the governor. Uh, this morning on Sunday, square off with Bram Resnick, uh, chief, Doug Ducey's chief of staff, Scarpinato, uh, Dan Scarpinato was on there saying that one of their goals is to try to close the achievement gap. Um, but the results-based funding depends on the results that are on the AZ merit tests and from, from the grade system. I know that within the education system, there's a lot of frustration with that, with that system itself. Just uh, a couple weeks ago, I was traveling for, for a basketball game to a, to a school out near globe and uh, chatted up with the principal who was new there. That was also um, at the athletic director talking about his efforts to sort of turn the school around and try to, um, to hit all the markers that the state has set up for what is success. And I tried to, I asked him a question like, 
um, what, what do you, what do you prefer? Like, are these the markers that you would prefer or what, what would you think that are good measurements? And it almost like did, the question didn't even register in his mind. He wasn't even thinking about that. All he was concerned with was trying to meet the markers, the grade markers that the state has set up. And so I think a big question is, and I don't think, I don't know if there's any chance of this being addressed in the session is what, what is the markers that we're using? What is the grade system that we're using? And is that the best thing? Are those, is that getting us the, you know, the, the priorities that an educator would want to see in a school? This program uh, illustrates how far uh, Governor Ducey has abandoned um, backpack funding, which is what he ran on in um 2014. With backpack funding, um, the same amount of money goes to whatever school a kid and his parents choose to attend. And you get more money by convincing parents and students to send kids to your school. So success is defined by what the parents and the kids are looking for, not what the state decides to look for. Um, so creating state stand, state, a state measurement of success uh, and providing schools more money for meeting what the state defines as success is a total abandonment of backpack funding and the marketplace competition to drive performance and close the achievement gap. So there's been a huge abandonment of that by uh, Governor Ducey. The um, state uh, grades uh, have been a meaningless joke uh, from ever since they were created over a decade ago. Uh, and they become more of a joke rather than less of a joke because uh, they used to be more heavily based upon the results of AZ Merit. And we've talked about, uh, or whatever the state test was at the time, and we've talked about how that's excessively comprehensive and tries to measure too much and tries to dictate curriculum um, rather than making sure people have the basic skills that they need to go forward. Um, in the most recent iterations, a variety of different subjective measures have been uh, added, particularly at the high school level. And um, things that can be manipulated, like graduation rates or, or attendance rates or pro portfolios. Um, and you have a situation where the overwhelming majority of schools are already rated A, or a or B, and supposedly we're dissatisfied with the performance of our education system. So even if you were to say we're going to provide funding based upon how the state defines success, uh, uh, the um, school grade formula that's currently being used isn't a worthwhile measure uh, because it is a joke. And in a, in a practical level, you're, you know, if you, if you have what you're describing is a market-driven market for education driven system, you, you, you'd have principals and schools saying, you know, what, what do we want to provide and what kind of educational experiences do we want to provide to attract students to come to our school and keep them out of school rather than a principal saying, 
I'm not even thinking about that question. All I'm doing is trying to hit all these, you know, markers that, that the state has, has set up. That would take an after legislature, right, to change the grading system? Yes. I mean, the, the, the Board of Education has um, some significant uh, discretion in terms of um, what to measure and how to weigh uh, different factors in coming up with the overall grade. Um, but um, I, I have offered the conclusion and observation uh, that um, trying to come up with letter grades has failed uh, and we ought to abandon it. Um, we should instead um, just produce, based upon whatever the state test is, and as we've talked here previously, I would radically reform the state test, but whatever the state test is, just publish two numbers. Um, one number is uh, annual growth, and the other number is how the students overall compare to other students in the state. And then, again, let parents weigh the value of those two things. And those aren't the only things that parents look for in a school. I mean, they, they, they look for safety, and they, they look for overall discipline and overall experience and the athletic program. So... Again, it's, it, it would be going back to, as you described, um, the principals and the people running the school would say, here's what we want to achieve. And then there would be a market test as to whether that attracts students and the state money would only flow based upon the success of convincing parents and kids that that's the right thing rather than trying to convince the Board of Education that that's the right thing. So let's transition a little bit and talk about the just the political dynamics of of being in election year and um, what how does that I mean how does how does that affect the decision making uh, of of lawmakers Is there anything unique about this year the political dynamics of of this year that's going to affect uh, what might come out of the legislature you know and is it going to cause p- lawmakers to not be willing to to solve issues like i don't know vaping or airbnb rental situation or like the you know red flag laws how is the political dynamics going to shape the sort of the real world production of of the session it it is a um, unusual political dynamic in that for the first time in a long time um, political experts on, uh, in both parties think that there is a very realistic chance uh, of the Democrats uh, taking control of one or even both houses. My impression so far is that that's not going to affect uh, the legislative session all that much except to create sort of a bipartisan desire to get out early and uh, hit the campaign trail. Uh, It seems like both parties are kind of afraid of their own shadow, that they're um, willing to go into this election um, fighting for the votes of suburban women based upon the dynamic that already exists rather than try to use the legislative session um, in part for political theater to score political points to help in 
that election. I don't think that the Republican leadership um, will actually try to get a bipartisan budget. I think one uh, would be uh, potentially doable, and uh, given the fact that the general appetite is to spend on existing state programs, it ought to be something that you could engage Democrats. There's been some speculation uh, offered to me that even if the Republican leadership reached out to the Democrats, they wouldn't want to help the Republicans pass a budget because they want them to look like they're struggling uh, during this session. So that might be an area where where it would uh, enter in. My, my sense of it is if there was a genuine offer to have a meaningful role in deciding where hundreds of millions of dollars were being spent, that that would be um, kind of hard for Democrats to pass up. But that might be the extent to which um, Democrats would be willing, if offered, uh, to help do the heavy lifting in the legislative session uh, might be affected by um, the legi- by the political dynamic. Now, this is just th- that it's not likely to is an impression I gathered from some discussions I had um, last week. It may very well be that as the session evolves um, that both parties will start to use the session as political theater and try to figure out things and that what they would can be, do. What would be an example of doing that successfully on either side in terms of a, a specific policy or issue that they could take to their voters? Well, the um, Democrats might try to force um, more forcefully uh, a discussion of increasing uh, taxes uh, for um, K through 12 education. Some of the social issues uh, might cut. Uh, one of the things that was cited to me as a potential example is Arizona has a fairly draconian um, anti-abortion law on the books uh, that was superseded by Roe v. Wade in order to uh, try to appeal to suburban Women, there was um, apparently at least some thought being given to trying to force a vote on that uh, because the Democrats think that the abortion issue for suburban women uh, cuts their way. I, I don't know that they are correct about that, but that is a certainly a, a belief. Uh, and um, from the Republican standpoint, there may very well be... Um, additional social issues that, that, that are pushed. I mean, if there is a realistic possibility that the Democrats will take over, this may be the last shot for the social conservatives, although I don't think they have the votes in the Republican caucuses anymore to do anything fairly significant. Do you think, uh, it seemed like for a couple years there, uh, Governor Ducey had so much power that it's almost like if he wanted something, he could rally up the votes and almost get what he wanted. Do you think that has changed? Like, for example, I know he he supports um, some version of the red flag law for uh, for gun safety, and does he does he still have the ability to if he wants something and puts his whole force behind it to get it? Or has the, has the dynamic shifted to that um, 
he he will have to he would have to get maybe more more creative uh, to advance his policies. Um, I, I think that's yet to be determined. My own instincts are that he will retain um, the ability to get virtually anything he wants um, from the uh, Republican legislature. The red flag law is a rare exception to that, and it and it involves gun control. So that's one of the sort of um, visceral issues where um, fealty to the governor doesn't overcome your um, fealty to the Second Amendment. Uh, the legislature, or the Republicans in the legislature, are supposedly coming up independently with spending priorities. Um, that's a new dynamic that may... Um, affect the extent to which the governor can get his own way on his budget priorities to the extent they conflict. My guess is they will overlap um, fairly uh, considerably. Um, We've talked about what we know is on the legislative agenda, but the table's going to be reset um, Tomorrow, when the governor delivers the state of the state, uh, he has a regular practice of in the state of the state uh, announcing um, new initiatives. Um, I don't anticipate any big, bold ones. I think they will be mostly a matter of political, uh, a small ball political packaging endeavors. But he's had a lot of them, and and he usually gets his way on getting those things accomplished. So I, I think that the legislative agenda will be dramatically affected and set by what the governor proposes. I think there may be, uh, compared to recent years, a bit more of self-initiative by the legislature than there has been. But my guess is at the end of the day, the governor still gets pretty much what he wants. One other example of something that kind of crosses the usual expectations of of partisanship in terms of policy, the Cap Times ran a story about um, Republican Walter Blackman, who has said he's going to uh, champion social justice reform as, as a Republican. Uh, and do you think that has any chance of gaining traction? Are there dynamics differently at all? Are there any different dynamics this session that might um, make subs- any substance criminal justice reform go through? It, it may be a year away. Um, certainly there is a growing um, bi-ideological Um, consensus in favor of criminal justice reform. You you have both liberal and conservative groups that have advocated it. Um, There are other Republicans uh, um, that uh, support it. It was thwarted, so so there's a growing momentum for it. It was thwarted last year in significant part because of the opposition of Bill Montgomery, uh, the Maricopa County attorney, um, and he's ex- he was extremely influential on criminal justice matters. He is now on the Arizona Supreme Court, uh, and so um, the 
most effective voice of opposition to substantial criminal justice reform is not there. That will have an effect. Um, however, you still have the same chairman of the House Judiciary and the Senate Judiciary Committee, both of whom were um, reluctant in the case of the House Judiciary Committee, firmly opposed in the case of the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman. Um, they're still there, and, and so you're going to so you your path uh, to achieving this is um, tricky in terms of the legislative arena. Now the um, Senate Judiciary Chairman uh, Eddie Farnsworth has announced that he's not running for re-election, um, which um, is why I say it may be a year from now, um, particularly if the Democrats take over one or other, one or both chambers, and even if not, I, I think you're beginning to see the voices of opposition um, step away from the field, and you continue to have a growing momentum that uh, something ought to be done in this arena. All right, well, last question, sports question. Sons have not been continuing the same momentum they started the season with. But they're still, believe it or not, in the playoff race, there's like six or seven teams fighting for the eighth spot in the in the West. What's your prediction? Will the Suns make the playoffs this year? I am pessimistic. Um, we are still experimenting. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that in order to get a realistic run – um, Monty Williams needs to settle on a rotation uh, and an approach and give it a run. Um, instead, it looks to me like we're going to spend the rest of the year continuing to experiment. Um, and it may be that that will be best for a long-term future. But uh, as, as I'm, I'm pessimistic because I... Now's the time to quit experimenting, settle right. on a rotation, right. settle on an approach, and go. As always on these <laughs> basketball questions, your judgment is infinitely better informed than mine. What's, well, what's your view? Um, I wouldn't say infinitely, but, um, yeah, I think a lot of Suns fans were panicking a bit, uh, a little bit, calling for trades and whatnot, but we haven't really seen – the consistent team. Aiton's out for 25 games plus nine more for a sprained ankle. Then you had uh, a lot of injuries here and there that that caused them to have to change. So, and then last year, Aiton's rookie year took him about half the season to actually find a rhythm when he started to put up consistency on offense and 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 defense. He's been he's been okay, but he hasn't been consistently aggressive on offense or uh, consistently. Um, a defensive stopper. I'm, I'm hoping that they'll come together. I think also they're they're not really a volume three point shooting team, even though stats say you should. They don't really have the personnel to do it. Maybe Cam Johnson is the one guy where you'd want to shoot almost every time when he's open. So I think just adjusting, finding their own style, and uh, I I am kind of optimistic, but um, cautiously optimistic that they'll find the find the rhythm that they had to to start the year. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can subscribe to us on any podcasting app, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, Overcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks.